welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and every single mystery novel written by Agatha Christie has now been covered on this podcast, but that does not mean that this podcast is over and done with. Oh, no. We are still going here. I have a short story that I am covering on this episode, which is not the short story I mentioned at the end of my previous episode. Boo! We've got a Halloween spooktacular surprise on our hands here, listeners. I will be covering the spooky Agatha Christie short story S.O.S. on this episode. But before we get into that story, I would like to make sure that you are all aware of an article that came out in the Los Angeles Times last week about the podcast. It was written by Deborah Nepburn, who is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. She also just so happens to be one of my oldest friends in the world. I've known her since I was eight years old, and I could not be more honored and flattered and thrilled that she wanted to write about the podcast and the journey that Catherine and I went on over the last five years. And then, of course, the tragic turn that journey took last year when Catherine passed away unexpectedly. Catherine's mother, Linda, who you heard from in the Curtain episode for this podcast, is quoted in the article, as are John Curran, Mark Aldridge, Sophie Hanna. So many of our friends are included in the piece. And I think one of the many things it does so beautifully and so brilliantly is to give a sense of the community Catherine and I built over the years, and also just to give an overall sense of what this podcast is, what it means, and what has happened since Catherine and I started this crazy venture all the way back in 2016. Sometimes over the last year when I meet people and they ask me what I do, and then I mention the podcast and they say, oh, tell me a little about it. (laughs) I find it hard to answer them in any sort of satisfying or thorough way, because at this point, it really is a long story and in some ways a sad story, but in a lot of ways, a really beautiful story. And I'm just... So grateful to Deborah for writing the piece. I have provided a link to it in the notes for this episode. And I would just really encourage any of you who haven't read it yet to click on the link and take a look at it and to share it with your friends, um, especially with people who may not know the podcast, but even people who do or people who will never listen to the podcast, but with whom you would just like to share the story because it might be of interest. I, for one, plan to use it as a calling card in the future. I'm so proud of the fact that it exists and is out there in the world. And final note on it, should you be so moved, I think one of the best actions you could take (laughs) after reading this article is to subscribe to the LA Times, even just a digital subscription. I know most of you do not live in the Los Angeles area, but they have a quite reasonable digital plan. That is how I consume the LA Times. And the Los Angeles Times is one of those great regional newspapers that we do still have in our lives. And where people like Deborah are doing such important work putting in the time and the research and the care to write stories like this one. And those in-depth sort of stories require a lot of resources. 
which is why those papers are so dependent on subscription. So I just encourage you all to subscribe to the LA Times if you can. And now I shall move on to the story at hand. SOS by Agatha Christie. First of all, I really appreciate that there are no periods in the title. This is just S space O space S. And that is because the reference is to SOS, the Morse code signal for help, which is not an abbreviation at all. Don't believe the hype that SOS actually stands for save our ship or save our souls or any such nonsense. Those are all backronyms, <laughs> i.e. reverse engineered abbreviations. Uh, in truth, SOS stands for nothing. It's just three dots, three dashes, and three dots, which happen to, yes, spell out SOS and Morse code. But you could also break down those dots and dashes differently and say that they spell out IJS, SMB, VTB, et cetera, et cetera. There's actually a whole history to how three dots, three dashes, and three dots came to be the universal distress signal. Basically, it was chosen as a signal because it could be sent quickly and easily, and it was also hard to misinterpret. But I will choose not to go down that rabbit hole. I will pull myself back from the edge and move swiftly along to the publication history for this story. SOS was first published in the UK in serialized form in The Grand Magazine in February 1926. So this is when Christie was hot and heavy into the serialized short stories. She published many a tale in The Grand Magazine. I don't have a record of a serialized publication in the US, which is not to say that it doesn't exist. As I just mentioned, Christie published so many of these short stories in her early career, and some of the serializations have slipped through the cracks. So perhaps it did feature in a U.S. magazine, but I was not able to find any record of that. It was first published in book form as part of the 1933 collection, The Hound of Death. Catherine and I have talked a lot about that collection on earlier episodes of this podcast. The collection is definitely an oddity in the Christieverse. Most of the stories feature elements of the supernatural and not in the Christie puzzle mystery seems supernatural, but there's a perfectly rational explanation provided at the end kind of way. <laughs> the supernatural elements in these stories really aren't explained away. This is Christie flexing her more mystical, fanciful, woo-woo side, if you will. Let's keep in mind, though, that Witness for the Prosecution is one of the short stories in this collection, and that the supernatural isn't treated exactly the same in all of these stories. There's actually a bit of a nuanced treatment of the supernatural in this very story, which we will get into. And final note on The Hound of Death, again, Catherine and I talked about this at much greater length in earlier episodes, but it was not actually published by Collins Crime Club or Collins at all. This book was published by Autumn's Press, O-D-H-A-M-S, and was not available to purchase in shops. Would-be readers actually had to collect coupons from The Passing Show, which was a weekly magazine published by Autumn's. And then in exchange for these coupons and seven shillings, they could receive one of six books. And this was one of those six books. Yes, we have talked about what the other five books were, and it is very interesting. But I am not going to trod over territory we covered in previous episodes. There was an edition of the book that did finally appear uh, for sale in bookstores in 1936. And that was published by Collins Crime Club. 
but this initial book publication in the UK was in 1933. And then in the US, the story was collected in book form in 1948 as part of The Witness for the Prosecution and Other Stories. It was also collected very recently in 2019 in The Last Seance, Tales of the Supernatural, which is a nice collection to be reminded of as we find ourselves here in the midst of spooky season. Uh, That collection is quite the mixed bag of Christie stories. It's got Poirot, Miss Marple, and much, much more. A lot of these outlier supernatural stories of Christie. So you might want to check that one out if you uh, don't have it already. All of the stories that appear in it have been published elsewhere, but it is a fun collection. Okay, let's talk about the victim of SOS. And this is tricky because what we really have here is not a tale of murder, but a tale of attempted murder. And it would be a bit of a spoiler to say who the victim is. So for now, let's actually say that our victim is our protagonist, Mortimer Cleveland, an authority on mental science who has written two excellent textbooks on the subconscious. He was also a member of the Psychical Research Society and a student of the occult. Hmm, interesting. Well, Mr. Cleveland, the occult specialist, has a very mundane thing happen to him, which is that his car breaks down in the middle of nowhere. Hmm, are we in spooky story territory yet? It's dark when this happens. It's actually raining and it's very misty. He's on the Wiltshire Downs. It doesn't seem like there's anyone around. But he sees a light in the distance, which turns out to be an isolated little cottage, the inhabitants of which take him in for the night out of the kindness of their collective hearts. Or does at least one of them have something much more dastardly planned for Mortimer Cleveland? We shall find out. Now let's talk about our suspects. And this is everyone who lives in that cottage Mortimer Cleveland happens upon. And that would be the Dinsmead clan, a charming little family of five. So let's meet the Dinsmeads. Dinsmeads, meet the Dinsmeads. All right. We've got uh, first up Mr. Dinsmead. All these descriptions here are quotes directly from the text. A big man with stooping shoulders and a broad red face. He had little pig's eyes that twinkled under his bushy brows and a big jowl devoid of hair. Sounds creepy, and spoiler, he is creepy. (laughs) Next up, we've got Mrs. Dinsmead. A little faded woman with colorless face, meager hair scraped back from her forehead, and a perpetually nervous manner. Hmm. She reminded me very much of Ethel Rogers in And Then There Were None. I think both these characters are defined by their nervousness slash anxiety. Next, we have Charlotte Dinsmead the first of two daughters within the Dinsmead clan. She is, quote, a beautiful girl of an extremely uncommon type. Her hair, red gold, stood out round her face like a mist. Her eyes, very far apart, were a pure gray. She had the mouth and chin of an early Italian Madonna. Oh boy, we're in an early Christie here because she's describing a woman as a Madonna. Oh yes, she is falling back on that crutch once again. Next up, we have Magdalene Dinsmead, Charlotte's sister, and in a totally different way, quite as beautiful as her sister. Very dark, with a face of marble pallor, a delicate aquiline nose, and a grave mouth. It was a kind of frozen beauty, austere and almost forbidding. And then finally, we have Johnny Dinsmead, the son of the family. He's described as an ordinary teenaged boy, and we never really get anything more specific than that. So there's Johnny. Or should I say, here's Johnny. (laughs) 
couldn't resist. All right, let's get into things as we head on over into the world as it appears to be. I have already really set the stage in that we have Mortimer Cleveland's car breaking down and finding this creepy cottage, but I actually did Christy a disservice by starting there when I was describing our would-be victim for the story because SOS starts much more creepily and I think much more effectively than that. We actually begin with this tableau of the Dinsmead family before we have any sense of Mortimer Cleveland or anyone outside of this family. And I think it's creepy from the get-go. It's definitely even creepier once we've finished the story and then realize exactly what was happening in this initial tableau. But I think you could make the argument that it's creepy on its face because Mr. Dinsmead is just this really almost violently jovial character. Whereas his wife, Mrs. Dinsmead, is nervous to the point of being terrified from the very first page. So right away, we know that something is seriously off here. Why is Mrs. Dinsmead so nervous? Why is she so frightened? What is she frightened of? And we get an echo of that fear in Charlotte and Magdalene. They are very uneasy. And we learn that the family just recently moved into this cottage. They had lived somewhere much more well-populated. There's no one for miles and miles around. And the only one who seems to really be having a good time is Mr. Dinsmead. They're setting the table for dinner. They're figuring out what they're going to be eating and drinking. Mrs. Dinsmead suggests lemonade, and Mr. Dinsmead shakes his head. He says, tea, much better in every way. Look at the weather, streaming and blowing. A nice cup of hot tea is what's needed for supper on an evening like this. Then he winks at her, which is always a creepy thing for anyone to do. He also calls his wife mother, <laughs> which I actually don't judge as harshly now that I have kids myself. I do understand why couples get into the habit of calling each other mom or dad or what have you when they have kids, because you just so often are referring to your partner from the perspective of your child. So you do just kind of fall into that habit. So I, I'm judging Mr. Dinsmead a little less, but it still reads as a little creepy here. So the table is set. The family is sitting down here to uh, a dinner of fried eggs, cold corned beef, bread, and cheese. Charlotte and Magdalene are basically grousing about how much they hate this new house <laughs> that they're living in. I don't think we ever get ages for them, but they seem to be around 18 or 20, somewhere in the young adult stage of their lives. Mr. Dinsmead is carving the corned beef dexterously. I imagine him wielding a knife that's sort of flashing and glinting in what little light they have on this gloomy night. And at one point, Mrs. Dinsmead drops a spoon and Mr. Dinsmead says, not nervous, are you, mother? It's a wild night, that's all. Don't you worry, we're safe here by our fireside and not a soul from outside likely to disturb us. Why, it would be a miracle if anyone did and miracles don't happen. No, he added as though to himself with a kind of peculiar satisfaction, miracles don't happen. So then, of course, you know that immediately after that, there's a knock on the door <laughs> and it's Mortimer Cleveland, whose car is broken down and he has seen the house and he has come in search of food and shelter. And of course, they're not going to deny him. And they're very hospitable, to be fair, to the Dinsmead family. They give him food and drink. 
But a little curiously, rather than just pour Mr. Cleveland a sixth cup of that tea that the family were all just on the precipice of drinking when Mortimer Cleveland came in, Charlotte literally had her cup suspended in the air on its way to her lips when he came in. Rather than just offer him some of that tea, Mr. Dinsmead picks up the five cups of tea on the table, and then one after another, he empties them into a slop bowl. And he claims that the tea is cold, although he kind of sort of just poured it. Uh, And he asks mother to make some more tea, which she does. And then they eat and drink. And we learn that Mr. Dinsmead is lately retired from the building trade and that he and the missus thought they'd like a bit of country air. They're eight miles from anywhere and 19 miles from anything you could call a town. And even though the girls find it a bit dull, he and mother very much enjoy the quiet. And on one level, Mortimer finds all of this quite charming, this familial scene of domestic tranquility. But on another, since he is attuned to uh, different wavelengths and perhaps the subconscious ways that people communicate, he can sense a strain, a tension that's emanating from one of these five people, but he doesn't know which. And he doesn't completely believe this. He himself has obviously just been through a bit of an ordeal. So he just kind of continues on with the evening. And Magdalene and Charlotte actually prepare the guest room. They take him up. They wish him a good night. He closes the door. He's undressing. He actually wears some of Mr. Dinsmead's pink pajamas, (laughs) since his clothes are obviously wet through. Pink is traditionally a masculine color, you know, since it is related to red, which was always traditionally a color associated with chivalry and and masculinity dating back to medieval times. It's actually a great little detail because I think this story does have a tinge of days of yore to it. It feels as though it were set in the (laughs) 19th, if not 18th century. Quite honestly, it reminded me a little bit of Jamaica Inn, the Daphne du Maurier novel, which I believe is set in the 18th century. It just feels period, even though obviously it's not. Mortimer Cleveland's car broke down. It wasn't a coach. (laughs) But I think this, too, is deliberate, and it just helps heighten that sense of isolation that we get throughout this entire story. Before he goes to sleep, he notices that the table by his bed is smothered in dust, and in the dust are written three letters, very clearly visible. And of course, those letters are S-O-S. And he knows that this is a call for help, and he knows that it must have been either Magdalene or Charlotte who wrote it, and he has no idea which it could be. And there's really nothing he can do about it. (laughs) And he tells himself, okay, I will investigate further tomorrow, and we shall see. And on the morrow... Mr. Cleveland wakes up early, he goes out into the garden, and he comes upon Charlotte in the garden. She's leaning on a fence, staring out over the downs. Christie writes, His pulse quickened a little as he went down to join her. All along, he had been secretly convinced that it was Charlotte who had written the message. And this is really subtextual, but I think it's pretty clear that Cleveland prefers Charlotte to Magdalene. I think Charlotte is the lady he was taken with. From the beginning, she's the first one he sees. He goes on a little bit more about how beautiful she is because we do see them through his eyes, even though the story is narrated by a third-person narrator. 
so anyway, he talks to her and more or less accosts her about the SOS that was written on his nightstand. He hints about it, but she doesn't really seem to be taking any of his hints. And finally, he just outright asks her if she wrote it. And she says, no, (laughs) I did not write it. And even at this point, he still won't let go of the notion that she wrote it. He thinks that maybe she unconsciously wrote it. And to be fair to him, he does have a reason for thinking this might be the case because Charlotte does tell him in the course of their tete-a-tete that she's very frightened here at this cottage and that her family don't seem to be the same, that they've all changed since they've moved into this house. And Charlotte is a person who believes in spirits and spiritualism and, and mysticism. And she tells Mortimer that this cottage is supposed to be haunted. She says, a man murdered his wife in it. Oh, some years ago now. We only found out about it after we got here. Father says ghosts are all nonsense, but I don't know. And of course, this is music to Mortimer occult expert Cleveland. So they're very much on the same wavelength here. Charlotte then goes inside the house, and it's Johnny who comes to fetch Mortimer in to breakfast. Mortimer notices that Johnny's fingers are stained, and Johnny tells him that he's been messing about with chemicals. He wants to do chemistry and research work, whereas his father wants him to follow in his own footsteps and go into building. Mortimer mentions Johnny's interest in chemistry over breakfast, which leads to Mrs. Dinsmead dropping her teacup. She's dropping spoons at dinner. She's dropping teacups at breakfast. Did I mention she's a very nervous person? It's also, by the way, during this scene over breakfast that Mr. Dinsmead calls Mrs. Dinsmead by her first name for the first time, which is Maggie. Let's just note that. Mr. Dinsmead starts talking about the advantages of the building trade, how he doesn't want to let young boys get above themselves. Mortimer just really can't stand Mr. Dinsmead at this point. He doesn't trust him. He hates how jovial and smiling he always is. And he thinks that there is something nefarious going on here. And those suspicions only grow after breakfast because he goes on a little walk after the meal, which takes him past the kitchen window where he hears Mr. Dinsmead and Mrs. Dinsmead talking. So first, Mr. Dinsmead says, it's a fair lump of money, it is. Then Mrs. Dinsmead answers, but he can't hear what she says because her voice is too faint. And Mr. Dinsmead answers, nigh on 60,000 pounds, the lawyer said. So that's interesting. A little later, Mortimer is speaking directly with Mr. Dinsmead, and he mentions the fact that his two daughters are very unalike. One of them has red gold hair and gray eyes. The other has very dark hair. And Mortimer suddenly has a flash of intuition. He says, But of course, they are not both your daughters. And Mr. Dinsmead answers him honestly. He says, that's very clever of you, sir. No, one of them is a foundling. We took her in as a baby and we have brought her up as our own. She herself has not the least idea of the truth, but she'll have to know soon. And the audacious Mortimer follows this up with a question of inheritance. Since he overheard the Dinsmeads talking about this 60,000 pounds, And the rather garrulous Mr. Dinsmead just continues to chatter on here. I'm quoting here from the text. This is Mr. Dinsmead speaking. A few months ago, I noticed an advertisement in the papers, and it seemed to me that the child in question must be our Magdalene. 
I went to see the lawyers, and there has been a lot of talk one way and another. They were suspicious, naturally, as you might say, but everything is cleared up now. I am taking the girl herself to London next week. She doesn't know anything about it so far. Her father, it seems, was one of these rich Jewish gentlemen. He only learned of the child's existence a few months before his death. He set agents on to try and trace her and left all his money to her when she should be found. And Mortimer believes this. He thinks to himself how this explains, quote, Magdalene's dark beauty, explained to perhaps her aloof manner. Oof. We're skirting close to the edge of some casual anti-Semitism here in an early Christie short story, but I don't actually think we ever quite get there. I'm happy to inform you. So even though Mortimer believes Mr. Dinsmead's story, he still thinks there's something Mr. Dinsmead isn't telling him. But what can he really do, right? So he says goodbye to Mr. Dinsmead, and he goes into Mrs. Dinsmead to bid her farewell. Mrs. Dinsmead is standing by a window with her back to him. So she starts nervously, but of course, (laughs) when she realizes that he's there and she drops something that she's been holding in her hand. Mortimer picks it up for her and we're told that it's a miniature of Charlotte done in the style of some 25 years ago. So that's also interesting. And then Mortimer leaves without saying goodbye to Magdalene or Charlotte or Johnny. But he's still concerned about this family, and he has an instinct that one of them is going to reach out to him anyway. So he's on his way back to his car when Magdalene essentially comes through some bushes on the side of the road and reveals herself and says, I had to see you. Mortimer says he's been expecting her, and he knows that she was the one who wrote SOS on his table in his room. And it's really funny, but after that scene with Charlotte, where he's desperate to prove that Charlotte is the one who wrote SOS, when he sits down to breakfast with the whole family, he has this brief interaction with Magdalene. And she asks over breakfast, did you sleep well? Was your bed comfortable? And Christy writes, she looked at him very earnestly. And when he replied courteously in the affirmative, he noticed something very like a flicker of disappointment pass over her face. What had she expected him to say? He wondered. And it's like, doofus, of course, she's the one who wrote SOS. She's basically asking you if you saw it and to react to it. And he just seems really clueless in this moment, but he makes up for it later now in the day when he is expecting Magdalene to come seek him out. And he knows that she, of course, is the one who wrote the SOS because he knows more at this point. And Magdalene is very honest with him. She says, like Charlotte, she just feels like there is something deeply wrong with her family ever since they moved into this cottage. Unlike Charlotte, she does not believe in ghosts. She does not believe in the spirit world. But all the same, she's really scared, just as scared as her sister. And that's why she wrote SOS. She says she did it on an impulse. I had an idea, absurd, no doubt, that they would not let me speak to you. The rest of them, I mean. I don't know what it was I meant to ask you to do. I don't know now. And Mortimer says, never mind, I shall do it. And she's like, do what? (laughs) And he says, I can think. Which is a very Poirotian thing to say, I think. He can sit back and use his little gray cells to figure out a solution here to the conundrum both Magdalene and Charlotte seem to find themselves in. So Magdalene leaves, and Mortimer does some thinking, as he said he would. And he's reflecting on the fact that both Charlotte and Magdalene indicated that their father seemed different, their mother seemed different ever since they moved to this cottage. Magdalene said that Charlotte seemed different. Charlotte said that Magdalene seemed different. But Johnny 
is the only one of the family who seems exactly the same. And for this reason, Mortimer very cleverly focuses on Johnny for a moment. The fact that he does all of these chemistry experiments and that Mrs. Dinsmead seemed so nervous when Mortimer made reference to Johnny's fondness for chemicals. All this makes Mortimer think about a news account he read not so very long ago of a whole family poisoned by a lad's carelessness. A packet of arsenic left in the larder had all dripped through on the bread below. He had read it in the paper, Christy writes. Probably Mr. Dinsmead had read it too. Things began to grow clearer. Dot, dot, dot. And now would be an excellent time to move on over from the world as it appears to be and into the world as it actually is using our Bridge O clues. But first, are you ready to Britbox? All right. So I mentioned how Britbox is doing this She Wrote Murder campaign in which they're highlighting female mystery writers like our beloved Agatha Christie. But let's take a moment to shout out another of the writers they've been featuring. That would be Anne Cleves, who is the beating brain behind not one but two hit series available on BritBox, Shetland and Vera, the latter of which stars the one, the only Brenda Bleffin. True story, but I was just rewatching The Witches the other day, the one with Angelica Houston in it. And Brenda Bleffin has a tiny role in that movie, but she is just so good and so funny in it because she is so talented. And if you haven't been watching Vera, you're really missing out. Vera herself may be a bit of a prickly character, but you will love her and her crime-solving acumen. There are 11 seasons slash series of the show at this point, with a 12th on the way. So what are you waiting for? Go to BritBox.com and if you're in the US or Canada, use coupon code AGATHA to save 50% off the first month of your monthly subscription. Subscribe now, then pop on a Vera, sit back, relax, and let the good and grisly times roll. Clue number one is money. When money gets mentioned, even in a weirdo creep fest of a story like this one, you'd better pay attention because money is so often at the heart of an Agatha Christie mystery. And this story is no exception. That really is our deduction here. This clue doesn't get us very far because Mortimer pretty much spells it out in his conversation with Mr. Dinsmead, which I already related to you. But we just always want to be laser focused on any mention of money in a Christie story. Clue number two is that miniature that Mrs. Dinsmead is holding done in the style of some 25 years ago. Now, why would there be a miniature of Charlotte done in the style of 25 years ago? (laughs) By the way, this is another instance of this story seeming like it's set in an earlier time. Were there miniatures being made in 1926? I'm sure there were, but that just feels like a 19th century detail to me. Also, by the way, since mentioning the fact that I thought Jamaica Inn was set in the 18th century, I have since looked it up and it seems to have been set around 1815. So technically it is set in the 19th century, though pre-Victorian era. Now, where was I? Our deduction here is that this is not a miniature of Charlotte. This is a miniature of Charlotte's mother. 
who looks exactly like her. And we can couple this reference to the miniature with Mr. Dinsmead's joke at the beginning of the story during that opening jovial tableau of the family. Mrs. Dinsmead says that Charlotte has grown a very good-looking girl, sweetly pretty, I say. And Mr. Dinsmead replies, ah, the mortal image of her ma, with an exclamation point. And because Christy always plays super, super fair, Magdalene actually mentions this comment to Mortimer Cleveland in that conversation she has with him after Cleveland has left the house just before we get into the world as it actually is. So we know that that has to be an important reference somehow. So putting those two elements together, I think an astute reader can reasonably deduce that the adopted child here is not Magdalene, which is what Mr. Dinsmead claimed in his conversation with Mortimer Cleveland. Charlotte is actually the adopted child because that is a miniature of her biological mother. And Mr. Dinsmead was making a joking reference to Charlotte's biological mother when he said those words, those probably pretty hurtful words to Mrs. Dinsmead. And I actually have a third clue as to which of these daughters is the adopted child and which is the biological child. We are told, again, that Mrs. Dinsmead's first name is Maggie. And of course, there is a good chance that Maggie is a diminutive nickname of Magdalene, meaning that the Dinsmead's daughter Magdalene was named after her biological mother. This deduction is never actually spelled out in the story, and it's a slight one. It really just confirms what we already know from the miniature and Mr. Dinsmead's comment about Charlotte looking like her ma. The only reason I wanted to highlight it is that Christy wrote this story in the 20s, a couple of years before she would go on to write Peril at End House, in which there would be some very, very similar hijinks going on with nicknaming and naming having to do with the very same names (laughs) that she uses in this story. I don't think that that is a coincidence. So I love the fact that she was cutting her teeth here a little bit on a trick that she would employ so brilliantly in Peril at End House. I will not get more specific than that because I don't want to spoil Peril at End House for anyone who might not have read it. But if you have read it, you know exactly what I am talking about here. And I just love when we can see Christy playing around with ideas that she would go on to use to such brilliant effect in future texts. So when we get to the end of our Bridge of Clues here, we know that Mr. Dinsmead is lying about which of his children is adopted. And given that he has told Mortimer Cleveland that his adopted child is the one who has come into a big inheritance, it is not a very big leap for an astute reader to make that, well, the reason Mr. Dinsmead is lying about this is that, big sigh, he wants his biological child to get the inheritance, not his adopted child. And yes, folks, that means that we have here another example of Christie's weirdness when it comes to adoption. Let me just remind you that Charlotte was taken in as a baby, so she has lived with this family her entire life. I find it hard to believe that her parents, the Dinsmeads, would just want to cast her aside and ensure that their biological daughter gets all the cashola. The implication here is that they just don't care about their adopted child. They don't, in fact, love her, whereas all of the love is bestowed on their biological child. 
that just does not ring true. I have talked so many times on this podcast about how distasteful I find Christie's strange ideas about adoption, though I am not sitting here in judgment on her. She had some personal reasons, I think, for her opinions, which are not even stuck in their time. They're just very personal and I think idiosyncratic to her. And she is a person who lives in the world and, of course, has the right to her opinions. She is fairly consistent with them across many books. But each time I come across them, I do find them difficult myself as someone who has a non-traditional family. And who can attest from personal experience that if you have one child who is biologically related to you and another child who is not biologically related to you, you feel the same way about them. The research is in, folks. I've done it. I've been doing it for the length of this podcast, in fact. And I can say with confidence, based on my experience, Agatha Christie is wrong when it comes to this. Or I at least have a firm basis and much life experience of my own to draw upon and disagree with her take wholeheartedly when it comes to this issue. Be that as it may, we can still enjoy this story. So let's move along to the world as it actually is. You didn't think Mortimer Cleveland was done with the Dinsmeads, did you? We get a repeat, a little do-over of the tableau that we were presented with at the beginning of the story. It is dinner time once again. The eggs are poached on this evening as opposed to fried. And instead of corned beef, we have a tin of brawn. So I actually had to look up what brawn is, and I'm sorry, UK listeners, but this very British food item is one of the reasons you all get such a bad rap when it comes to food. An undeserved bad rap. I have, you know, been in England many times. I was there just recently for the International Agatha Christie Festival. You all have some great food, but it's when we start talking about stuff like tinned brawn that eyebrows begin to rise. So brawn, B-R-A-W-N. Same spelling as the last name of my most recent guest, David Braun. No relation, I'm sure. Braun is meat from a pig's or calf's head that is cooked and pressed in a pot or tin with jelly. Oh boy, just no. <laughs> so that's what they're eating. Is it any wonder that things have turned murderous in this family? They're sitting down to this hideous dinner, and it's time to pour out the tea once again. Mrs. Dinsmead fills the cups. She hands them around the table. And then, just as she puts the teapot down, she gives a sudden little cry and presses her hand to her heart. Because Mortimer Cleveland is standing there in the doorway. And he takes one of the teacups from the table and empties some of its contents into a little test tube that he's brought with him. And then he takes a second teacup off the table and he fills a second test tube with some of its contents. The first test tube is from Charlotte's cup, and the second test tube is from Magdalene's. And Mortimer says, I am prepared to swear that in the first, I shall find four or five times the amount of arsenic than in the latter. Because what the Dinsmeads are about to do is poison the entire family, including themselves. They're all going to get sick, and they're going to blame it on that tinned brawn. Yes, we have some bulging cans here, folks. Potomane to poisoning rears its ugly head again. They're going to blame the general sickness on food poisoning and then say, oop, Charlotte got sicker than the rest of us. And that's why she died. 
Mortimer in this mini denouement here <laughs> goes on to explain in front of the entire family that Magdalene is the Dinsmead's biological daughter. Charlotte is their adopted daughter. The miniature Cleveland handed back to Mrs. Dinsmead was of Charlotte's mother, not Charlotte. Quoting now here from the text, your own daughter was to inherit the fortune. And since it might be impossible to keep your supposed daughter, Charlotte, out of sight, and someone who knew the mother might have realized the truth of the resemblance, you decided on, well, a pinch of white arsenic at the bottom of a teacup. Ah, own daughter, supposed daughter. They're both their daughters. Moving on. Mrs. Dinsmead at this point just completely cracks. She starts cackling and rocking in her chair. Tea, she squeaked. That's what he said. Tea, not lemonade. <laughs> okay. Charlotte is just staring at him wide-eyed, realizing for the first time that she is adopted. Remember, Mr. Dinsmead said that neither of the girls had any idea that one of them was adopted. And then Magdalene drags Mortimer out of earshot. And she asks him in so many words whether he's going to turn in their father. And he says no. And this is where Mortimer really gets the last word here. And it's where Christy maintains a toehold on the supernatural in this story. Because, of course, this really is one of the least supernatural stories in this collection, right? The reason Charlotte was in moral danger had to do with greed. Her parents wanted the money. They apparently wanted it for their biological daughter rather than their adoptive daughter. And that's why they've tried on two successive nights to kill Charlotte. But Mortimer now in the final paragraph of the story assures Magdalene that he is not going to turn in Mr. Dinsmead or Mrs. Dinsmead. He says, my child, you don't believe in the past. I do. I believe in the atmosphere of this house. If he had not come to it, perhaps I say, perhaps your father might not have conceived the plan he did. I keep these two test tubes to safeguard Charlotte now and in the future. Apart from that, I shall do nothing in gratitude, if you will, to that hand that wrote SOS. So the effect of the supernatural, the influence of the supernatural is preserved at the end of the story. It's rather nicely done. A little deft touch by Christy there. She really is having her cake and eating it, too. She manages to create a puzzle mystery-ish tale of attempted murder that also has overtones of a haunted house story. A story in which this perfectly happy family have been influenced by bad juju <laughs> to destroy one of their own. So that's all very well done. I do find this ending a little curious because it is unclear to me whether... Cleveland is indicating here to Magdalene that he would like to end up with her or that he would like to end up with Charlotte, or perhaps he's indicating neither option and he's just going to leave them alone. It's a bit vague. And I also think a bit strange that he has unearthed all of this horror in this family. And he's just like, oh no, these two test tubes, which I hope he stoppered by the way, are all that I need to make sure that you'll all be hunky dory out here in the middle of nowhere from now on. Like, A, I think they need to move. B, I'm pretty sure Mr. Dinsmead needs to go to jail. And C, Mrs. Dinsmead at the very least needs a long vacation, if not some medical assistance. Anyway, I think this is actually a really fun story. It's an oddity. I first read it many years back when Catherine and I were taking a general survey of the Christie short story material out there in the world. Unlike Christie's novels, I didn't read every single Christie short story when I was younger. So we really did have to 
make ourselves aware of the landscape as to short stories. And I remembered that initial read five to six years ago when I was rereading the story for this episode. It really stuck with me in a way that many of these stories, especially from the Hound of Death collection, quite honestly, did not stick with me. The Hound of Death is an interesting collection, but some of the stories in it are not among Christie's finest. Let's just put it that way. I've actually covered a number of these stories on the podcast's Patreon account as well, and then a few in earlier episodes here on the regular podcast, and I still have a few to go. So most of those will probably be covered on Patreon. But I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to cover this one here on the regular podcast and during such an appropriate season because there are a few short stories in which Christy manages to nail an atmosphere in record time. And I think this is one of them. From the very first page of this story, you're thinking to yourself, what is going on here? This feels very creepy. And it really doesn't let up until the end. I'm not going to say that this is one of Christie's finest short stories. It's not. But I do think it's a really interesting and effective one. There is no film or television adaptation for this story. A few of the Hound of Death short stories were adapted in the Agatha Christie Hour. That's that early 80s 10-episode series in which a grab bag of Christie short stories were adapted for television. I think that this could potentially make for a good hour or so of television in the Agatha Christie Hour model. It is a little bit of a strange story. I was actually reading comments of readers on Goodreads, which is an interesting site to peruse for readerly response. And a lot of people were confused actually reading this story and didn't quite understand what the quote-unquote solution was at the end. And given that it does involve this somewhat unsavory notion of parents preferring their biological daughter to their adoptive daughter... Perhaps that was why the Agatha Christie Hour chose not to adapt SOS and why it hasn't been adapted subsequently. But I think it would be fun to recreate this atmosphere on the Wiltshire Downs and in this isolated cottage, etc., etc., for the screen. I did find out from my good friend John Curran in his Agatha Christie's Complete Secret Notebooks. I do now have the omnibus edition of Mr. Curran's books. And it is a very satisfyingly chunky text that I will enjoy consulting for many episodes to come. Curran tells us that initially when Agatha Christie was planning her theatrical play, Rule of Three, which is a series of three short plays performed in quick succession. She eventually wrote original plays for Rule of Three, but at one point she was toying with the idea of adapting existing short stories of hers, and one of them was SOS. The other two were Accident and The Raja's Emerald, both of which Catherine and I already covered in earlier episodes of this podcast. So that's really interesting. And it's nice to know that as late as 1955, she was still thinking about SOS. And in fact, she was even thinking about SOS as late as 1974, because I also learned from Mr. Curran that when 1974's Christie for Christmas was in its planning stages, remember, that would become Poirot's early cases, those early Poirot short stories that had not been collected in book form yet, at least in the UK. At one point in the negotiations between Christie and Collins, 
Christie herself had the idea to do a collection that could, quote, also include what you might describe as Agatha Christie's own favorites among her own early stories. This is Christie writing to Billy Collins. So she sent Billy Collins a list of, again, quoting, my own favorite stories written soon after the mysterious affair at Styles, some before that. So these would be early, early short stories of hers. And guess what? SOS is one of those stories. The list of stories she provided is odd. Not all of them are actually early stories. And she even suggested that two full-length novels of hers might be included in the collection. Those would be Dumb Witness and Death Comes as the End. So, you know, I would have had a real big problem with that collection. But I do think it's interesting that Agatha Christie thought to include this weird little story that she wrote at that point nearly 50 years earlier. I think it speaks to its power. I think there might be a very modern way to do SOS and to even put a modern twist on its solution. That vague oddball ending is screaming out for some adaptational revision. So who knows? Maybe someday there shall be an episode of TV or a feature film adaptation of SOS. But for now, we have to content ourselves with the text alone. And that is just fine. Well, that is S.O.S. by Agatha Christie. I will be covering in my next episode, the Harlequin tea set, the final Mr. Quinn, Mr. Satterthwaite story to be covered on this podcast. I promise I will be covering that one in the next episode. Should you want more content before then, head on over to the podcast's Patreon site, www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I've provided a link in the notes to this episode. September's Patreon is a deep dive review of See How They Run, the Christie-inspired, Christie-addled, you could say, Fox Searchlight movie that came out recently. I had a lot of fun watching and reviewing that. You can email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at All About the Dame and on Instagram at All About Agatha. Please do take a moment to give a rating and or a review to the podcast if you haven't already. Please do subscribe to the LA Times if that's something you feel you can do. And take a look at that lovely piece for which I have also provided a link in the notes to this episode. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.